0: It's been great to worship together already this morning, and we want to continue that as we finish our series on the 12. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Malachi, chapter 2, starting in verse 17. And we'll finish the book today, we'll finish the series, and we set our sights next upon uh, the Gospel of John, which will begin next week. If you'd like to read ahead with us on that, I would encourage you this week in your devotional time to look at John 1, verses 1 through 18. I'm very excited about that, but I'm also grateful that we're finishing uh, one of the most obscure books in the entire Bible. By that, I not only mean Malachi, but the 12 as a whole. We have learned in recent weeks that these books were actually intended to be read together like another one of the major prophets, and they tie from beginning to end with repeated themes. and In Malachi, what we've seen so far are some applications of all the prophetic literature that has preceded it, and so we end on a very practical end this day. It's page 802 in the Bible in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, please use that. To orient us to the text, I'm actually not going to read the first few verses. I'm going to read the last two. They summarize the book as a whole and what it's calling for. Go to Malachi chapter 4. We'll start our study with verses 4 and 5 and then jump back to chapter 2, verse 17. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree. Of utter destruction. This week I've enjoyed reading a book that's outside my uh, normal flow. It's not a typical author that I would read, but the title captivated me and I couldn't put it down. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, The author is named John Mark Comey. He seems to be uh, an evangelical millennial megachurch pastor somewhere in Portland. I don't really know the guy that well. But again, the subject enthralled me. His big premise is actually something that we have been thinking about together as a church for at least a couple years now, and that is, what does it mean to wear the gentle yoke of Jesus in a very busy world? And so one of his premises, one of his premise are that the lifestyle of Jesus, uh, to, to follow the way of Jesus, we must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And he uses this analogy that I find to be helpful, this correspondence between lifestyle and finish line. Living in Portland, he says that across the street from him is this uh, group of um, finely fit young people. There's five or six of them that live in the same house. He says that they seem to work for Nike, as evidenced by all the merchandise that they wear. They have single-digit body fat, and they're up every morning around 5.30 to get ready to run. Now, this particular group, from what he describes, their warm-up is faster than anything most normal people would be able to do in an all-out sprint. Uh, They are dedicated to their craft. They run miles every day, uh, and they also enjoy the benefits of this certain chiseled look that so many of us, whether we admit it or not, often Long for. And yet, Comer responds by wondering if that type of lifestyle is worth that kind of finish line. To, To have that type of chiseled physique, to be able to be that athletic, requires a certain kind of life. It isn't just about the finish line, the goal. It's about the means to get there, And he reflects, do we really want that? Do I want that kind of life? Do do I really want to expend that much energy and effort? Do I want to adopt these values in the things that I eat and in the the things that I do? And like, do I really want to give up casual runs? And do I really want to give up donuts? Donuts. It's a good question for us all. We we all can look at times at certain ideal finish lines, things that look beautiful to us, things that uh, we would value and prize, and we naturally do this internal cost-benefit analysis and we ask, is it worth it? In the world in which we live, many would be tempted to ask if the Christian life as it is presented currently is worth it. I described Malachi's world as a post-Christian world, much like our own. There used to be a day and a time where it was actually celebrated and respected to be a follower of Jesus. Sexual morality, for example, was largely in line uh, with uh, that of the Scriptures, and people valued that. It was viewed as a respectable thing to go to church on Sundays and to be a follower of Jesus. But we know that now things are way different. Uh, We may have this ideal of living the Christ-like life, but it's a lot harder, it seems, than it used to be. There's a lot more opposition out there, there are a lot more temptations, and so a question could be asked in a world as morally reprehensible as our own, is it really worth it? That's the question that's being asked throughout this text. So you need to understand that Malachi is written to a group of people who are what I would call third-generation followers of Yahweh. They're not first-generation. They're not new converts. They're not even the children of the people that uh, Haggai and Zechariah were preaching to about 100 years before. These are the grandchildren of those who were at one time faithful followers of the Lord. And in light of that, they've become kind of complacent. The morality has slipped, their intentionality is gone, and one of the things that has marked their at least responses to the Lord throughout this entire book is sarcasm, bitterness, just a a healthy degree of skepticism toward whether or not it's really worth it to live out God's ways. I mean, just listen to a few of the statements of the people at the time from the text that we're going to look at this morning. The first one you'll find in chapter 2, verse 17. Hear it. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, this is the things that they are saying out loud to one another, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Notice that they're like, is it even worth it? Is it even worth it to do right? Because it seems that the pagans around us are more prosperous than we are. Like, is there a benefit to this? Like, should we be giving up these certain things and not partaking of these other things that we really like? Is God really just, to hear more of their comments, turn over to chapter 3 and look at verse 13. It says, "'Your words have been hard against me,' says the Lord." But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. Do you see what they're they're evaluating here? They're like, it's not even worth it. These are followers of the Lord, and they're saying, I don't think we need to go all in on this thing because there doesn't seem to be any immediate payoff. And that is the peer pressure that inevitably comes in a post-Christian world. There was a generation in which it was celebrated, and now it's just tolerated. And so they wonder, is it really worth it? There's a temptation to be bitter and despondent and complacent and disbelieving. It is around us. It is real. And so the prophet here calls for some practices that would publish their privileged position in Yahweh if indeed they are in him. What he's going to show here is that those who have truly benefited from God's grace will indeed value things that are contrary to the culture in which they find themselves. What we have here are values for the faithful who will persevere through a post-Christian world. Ultimately, what he is communicating to them is that, yes, it is worth it for those who are following the Lord, and here are some things that they're going to hold to. No matter how bad it gets, these are some values that they have that will lead to the goal line. That they long for in the Lord. I will list them for you now because the text is a little complicated. So the, these are simple outline, structure, hangers, if you will, to organize these verses. The three values that are commended here are ethical purity, spiritual generosity, and eternal expectancy. Let's look at these together. These are the things that will, will mark those were faithful to Yahweh in a complacent and bitter world. For the first is ethical purity. You find that in chapter 2, verse 17 to 3, 5. What this text is actually doing is rather fascinating because they are opening up in, with the charge saying, everyone who does good is evil in the sight of the Lord. God is not just. He is not doing the right thing. He is not rewarding the righteous. He is not pouring out His wrath on the wicked. It isn't even really worth it to try to live ethically these days. We should just basically live however we jolly well please. And inherent in that is this accusation that God is in the wrong, that the Lord is the one who is out of line. They're saying that they are in line. They're doing exactly what needs to be done. God is off. He is in error. And so, What the prophet does is he actually forecasts for them that God will come, and he will right that which is wrong. But here's the big surprise. They're the ones that are in the wrong, not God. Notice how this unfolds beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, pause there for a moment. I want you to see what's going on. There are literally 16 interpretive possibilities for this one verse, so I'm not going to walk through them all. I want to give you the most simple and what I think is the most clear. God is saying that, okay, you want the God of justice to show up and right all the wrongs? He's coming. And here's how you're going to know he's coming. First of all, he's going to send his messenger, a special messenger ahead of his return to prepare people for his coming. That phrase, prepare the way of the Lord, is actually speaking to that ancient Near Eastern practice of someone going ahead of a king before he would visit a city to make sure that not only the city was prepared, but even the roads themselves, (laughs) that there would be no obstacles, that there would be no threats. God is saying, I will send someone who will prepare you for my coming, my messenger, my special messenger. The book of Matthew and Luke and John all speak to who this messenger actually is, and we'll find out more about this in a couple weeks in our study of John. It is none other than John the Baptist who would actually come and he would prepare the people for the Lord's first coming. The text speaks clearly to that. He says, I am going to get you morally ready for the coming of the king. You need to live up to his standards. He's gonna call you to repentance. And indeed that happened, but not only does the text speak to the first coming, but notice the mention of the second coming. It says, and the messenger of the covenant, this is in the second half of verse one, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then what he describes in verse two and following is something that didn't happen in the first coming alone, but something that happens in the second. And so this arbiter of the covenant, A different messenger, like the angel of the Lord, same word here, angel, messenger, even Christ himself will come, and notice what happens when the Lord finally shows up, verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller soap, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and the former years. Notice what's going to show up. God's going to show up in the person of his covenant messenger. The pre-runner will come, this first messenger. John the Baptist will come. But then the Lord will come, and he will intensely purify his people. They thought that God was in the wrong and that basically he needed to be cleansed. And what's ultimately going to happen when he shows up is that they're going to be the ones who are cleansed. And it's very violent language, frankly. He noticed that he says that his coming is going to be like... A refiner's fire. This is like a blast furnace. This is how they would smelt metal. This wasn't just a little campfire. This was as hot as it could get in the ancient world. He's saying it's going to be like a blast furnace. It's going to be like fuller soap. Now, that's also a violent metaphor. I know that we in our own 21st century Western culture don't think of soap as a very violent thing. <laughs> but you need to understand that they didn't have soap as we know it today. They basically would take ash and they would run it through water. It's a complicated process you can learn online. (laughs) But they would make an alkali. And this is something that would cause a chemical reaction with the dirt. It was kind of intense. If you let something that has uh, too much base material touch your skin, it will burn you. And in a similar way, they figured out a way to make this particular chemical. And then they would take the clothes and they would beat them against rocks. That's how you got things clean. Maybe you've seen like those old movies where people are using washboards. It is a violent process to get something clean. He's not talking about dove soap that's gentle on your skin and will wash it away. He is saying it will be intense and it will be thorough it will be like a blast furnace removing the impurities from metal. It will be like dirt being beat and chemically treated out of a garment. It will be a rough and violent time for you. God is not in the wrong. You are in the wrong. In what way? There's two ways in particular. There's two things that, that he is ultimately concerned about with this particular generation of people. The first is their worship. That's why he says that he will first purify the sons of Levi. These were the spiritual leaders of the particular day. He said what they were offering, and we already saw this in chapter 2 about three weeks ago, that they were just offering these lame offerings to the Lord, like they're kind of leftovers. And he's saying, your heart is messed up. I will clean your heart in such a way that you will finally be able to offer worship to the Lord that he deserves, that he is worthy of. I will first cleanse the priests, the spiritual leaders. But notice that he says that will then have an impact upon the people as a whole. Look again at your text in verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem, this is God's people as a whole, will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. It's kind of like a modern, I mean, an Old Testament way of saying the good old days. Back when things worked the way they were supposed to, it's going to be like that again. So it's going to purify their worship, but notice this. It will also purify their walk. Verse 5. Then, at the same time when I show up, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The thing that he adds here that is new to this particular book is that God's cleansing will result in a renewed compassion for people around them. One of the values of the person who is actually going to enjoy the favor of God when he returns. those who love the marginalized society around them. The worship has already been addressed, but now here he is introducing the walk. And he mentions, he bookends this phrase about their, their walk with the Lord, their behavior with a concern for God. Notice that he says that they will be purged and purified of sorcery. I don't think that anyone in here has a cauldron in their backyard and is producing potions and calling on demons. But what was going on in that particular time was as base as that. It is pure-blown idolatry. It is forbidden ways of securing power for the things that we really want. And we may not actually take the spiritual route, but all of us know what it's like to seek power in places that God has prohibited to seek influence in ways that he does not approve. That's at the beginning of the list. At the end of the list, what you have is, he will also purge them so that they will finally fear the Lord. That's natural, reverence for God. But what's in the middle? Look at verse five again. Here's a value of those who are truly cleansed and right with God. It says that he will be a swift witness against adulterers, sexual sin, Again, which doesn't get spoken about very much, but I was just having a talk yesterday with Eric Bancroft, our, our missionary. who was in Miami. And one of the things that uh, he has been wrestling with, especially with people between the ages of 20 and 30 in his congregation, and that represents about 75% of the people that he has. He says, is that most of them actually think that adultery and fornication are just crazy things like, Sexual abuse. They think that the the normal Miami kid this day thinks that uh, heterosexual uh, commitment, even outside the bonds of marriage, is okay because they love one another. He was doing a Bible study with this one particular person and they were talking about fornication. And anyway, they had to define that and were like, oh, they're living together. Like, oh, we didn't even know that was sin. Uh, Friends, I want you to know that this is something that we need to be clear on in our own generation and day. God is purging a people who will reflect that in the way that they behave sexually. God forbids adultery. There's an ethical component to those who, who value and follow the Lord. It isn't just adultery, but also notice the next one, against those who swear falsely, like meaning what you say. Not trying to get out of your contract, not trying to wiggle around things, letting your yes be yes and your no be no, your obligations, living up to those. And then these are the ones that kind of make me feel uncomfortable against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and those who thrust aside the sojourner. Now, friends, I'm not, that I know of, actively oppressing any hired workers but the, the, the calls for societal reform and for the care of the needy and the marginalized and the outcast, I think sometimes get very silenced and minimalized in a capitalistic, politically conservative culture. There are people out there who are hurting they have been enslaved. They are being oppressed. I just finished reading The Greats of Wrath by John Steinbeck. And like it helped me see, like once again, like how certain people in certain economic conditions can be easily mistreated and taken advantage of. And friends, this is not the concern of the liberal Democrat. This is the concern of the Jesus loving Christian. He says, this is a value. Those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, the fatherless, the orphan. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner, the illegal immigrant. These are things that God will produce in his purged and purified people. Here's the principle. Instead of complaining about God and being complacent about right living, the faithful who persevere through a post-Christian world will value ethical purity. An ethical purity provided by Christ indeed and also motivated by his return. But what is, this is teaching us is clear is that God doesn't need to be made right. You and I are the ones that need to be made Right? Let me ask you, I look at a crowd this size, do you need to be made right? Do you see yourself or have you ever seen yourself as in the wrong? Have you been made right by God? Friends, we're all born as warped wood. We are twisted. We have this bent toward ourselves and not toward our sovereign or our Savior. And we need to be straightened out. And that doesn't happen through moral grit and tenacity. It happens through God's grace as he shows us our warped condition through the Holy Spirit and then shows us the solution for that through Jesus Christ. Christ paid the penalty for that. He endured the judgmental wrath, the white-hot wrath, that beating of the garment, if you will, that would make things pure. He went through that judgment process for you through his death on the cross. And he rose again, showing that all who trust in him can have the power to live this straightened-out life. You need to be made right by him if you have not been so. But if you've already been made right, what would it look like? This is what Malachi is ultimately getting at. Here's what it looks like for the person who's been made right. Here's a value for someone living in a post-Christian world. It will look way different than the people around you, but here's some of the things that it will do for you. It will make you ethically outstanding. You should look differently in the way that you live than the lost people around you because Christ has made you different. I want to encourage you with this, not exhort. I'll do that in a second, but let me encourage you. I see this in our church family, and I am encouraged, and I think that you should be too. There are many of you who are committed to good works on that horizontal level. I think of those of you in our church who have adopted or fostered or served as a guardian ad litem, that is showing grace and kindness and care to the fatherless. I think of those of you who are regularly investing your time and your energy and money to take care of your aging parents who no longer have like, the, support, the means to support themselves anymore. That is a valuable ministry of God's people that often goes unnoticed. It's funny to me, we have classes on how to raise kids and classes on how to raise teenagers and classes on how to be single. Where are the classes on how to care for aging parents? And yet Jesus made that a non-negotiable for those who would be his followers. It was the Pharisees who were just throwing a bunch of money at the temple and saying, oh, it's a gift. I'm off the hook. They're going to have to take care of themselves. Friends, that is a good work that God himself values. And I'm glad to see it here. Philanthropy. Even political action, friends, is a good thing. Some of you are working to see a more just society and world through the political realm, and that is not a bad thing, that is a good thing. Just general kindness to neighbors, excellence in your work, these are good things. These are things that actually mark someone who's been made right. You wanna do good work, Martin Luther said it this way, make a good shoe at a fair price. You should be the best employee in your workplace. Good works includes, by the way, your work. And so when you work hard at your job, you are representing the Lord well. But I would also exhort us that there is much opportunity to be had in evidencing our allegiance to God through our love for others. We need to remember, friends, that love for God cannot be divorced from love for neighbor. I think of, um, I think of when Jesus was asked that command. He said, what's the greatest commandment? And, and what was his answer? He never gave the one. He said the two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How much time do you actually spend loving, caring for the lost people around you? Can I take a paradigm that's helped me of late? Uh, I've always tried. I love simplicity. I try to boil things down and the things that I can remember. My kids make fun of me for making lists and charts for everything. I, I do that because I like to be on top of it. And one of the ways that I've always thought of just my obligations as a believer in Christ, I limited it to three E's. Are you ready? Exaltation, edification, and evangelism. That kind of sums it up, doesn't it? I mean, exaltation, we worship the Lord, edification, we build up other Christians, evangelism, we reach the lost. I have recently been made aware of a fourth category, one of which I was not formally aware until actually reading this text. It's an E, as you would guess, and I'll have to explain it. I'm sorry. Exemplification. Exemplification. What do I mean by that? It's putting an example out there of good works in a society that is twisted, wrong, and messed up. See, the evangelism, folks, is what you say. The gospel is a message, it is something that is proclaimed. Whoever said that horrible phrase, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, was dead wrong. The gospel is a message. It is the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. It is the fullest message of the gospel that produces conversion. But listen to this. The gospel is platformed through good works. My fear is that in a church like ours, we'll be so focused on evangelism that we forget about the exemplification. Some of you are like, like all, all gospel, all message, all diamond, if you will, but no prongs, no, nothing to hold it up, to display it, nothing to show it. It's kind of like hidden in your pocket somewhere. And some churches and people have a tendency to be all prongs and no diamond. They're all about the good works. They're all about the social action. They're all about trying to influence others and be a good example, and yet they never actually get to the translation of, I do this because of what Christ has done for me and sharing the gospel. Malachi here upholds both for us. So, we've seen that the faithful who will persevere through a post-Christian world value ethical purity. But that's not all. They also value spiritual generosity. Spiritual generosity. Uh, Look at verse 6, verses 6 and 7. This is a, a beautiful Passage. Notice how God starts off this speech about their finances and their giving. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Notice that. He says, I haven't consumed you because I am just the same yesterday, today, forever. I love you. I am not going to be fickle. Notice verse 7. They have been fickle. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, that's the same word for repent. Repent, turn to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now notice this, he's inviting them back into relationship with him. It's like, you've turned away from me, but you turn back to me, and things are going to be like they used to be. But notice their sarcastic objection once more. But you say, how shall we return? Like, what way have we turned away from you? And then God's answer is in verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Sarcastic response again. But you say, how have we robbed you? And the answer comes from God. in tithes and contributions. Now I want to pause here and explain what's going on historically. I'm not making any applications yet. So nobody can feel uncomfortable about a single thing. Not yet. Historically, these particular people who were supposedly followers of Yahweh had totally given up on this fact of supporting God's work via the temple. Now, here's how things would go down. The word tithe just simply means a tenth. It was expected of them that every year they would give a tenth of their income to the temple to keep that thing going. So basically, remember, the Levites, the priests, Uh, For went any other job and they lived off the the giving of the other people and they were supposed to support the temple sacrifices. So their 10% tax staffed the temple. Their offerings were the things that were given on top of that. So that would be like the offering that they wanted to give on the day of atonement or the Thanksgiving offerings that they wanted to give. Think of the 10% kind of being like the taxes of a theocratic government, it wasn't a democracy. It wasn't even a monarchy at this point. It was theocracy ruled by God, and there was a representative in place. But ultimately, the 10% kept the government running, and then the offerings were gifts to God on top of that. What they had done is just they had stopped giving to the Lord. Now, you need to understand something. This is different than the first group of people in Malachi who were giving just the leftovers. They were at least giving. But what they were doing is they were finding like the sick sheep and the the maimed goat and saying, oh, let's get rid of that. This particular group of people weren't doing jack squat. They're just like, it's not even worth it. Who cares about the temple? Who cares about the worship of God? And God says, you're robbing me in that. Now, here's the crazy thing. God owned it all anyway. But by not giving it back to him, they're especially robbing him. He said, look, this is the deal. I'm going to give it to you, but you give it back so that you can participate in the worship that should be taking place as a distinct nation on this earth that represents me. Now look at verse 9. This is, it gets really, really bad for them because he's going to curse the whole nation for this. It says, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Curse is divine judgment upon the old covenant people. But now, in addition to the condemnation, he also offers an invitation. Look at verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Pause there for a second. I always wondered about that. Like, is God hungry? You know, what is the food in the house? Why does he like need stuff in the fridge? But remember. It was the priests who were living off of the temple, and they were supposed to have a surplus of whatever it is they needed. He said, there needs to be food in my house so that these guys can do the work they need to do. Here's the funny thing. In the earlier verses, back in chapter 2 and the end of chapter 1, he says things went so bad with the priests because people weren't giving as much, and so the priests got desperate, and they started lowering their standards of service. You know, the health inspector is supposed to be the guy that says, all right, No cross-contamination with the knives. Make sure you use a different mop to mop the dining room than you do the bathroom. Uh, Make sure that you cook the meat at the right temperature. You know, that kind of, you want a good health inspector that follows all the rules. Well, guess what? If the health inspector gets desperate, he can get paid off. And you end up with nasty restaurants. In a similar way, the priests got desperate and they started getting paid off and you ended up with nasty worship. And God says, no, this is cursed. This is not allowable. On the positive side, I want to invite you to do something, Israel. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Don't hold back that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, not in a skeptical way, but in a believing way. Show, demonstrate that I am who I say I am, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. They were suffering from real need. Remember, the nations around them were prosperous, they were still floundering, and so they, they wanted resources. And God is saying, "I'm offering you resources." Notice this: I will rebuke the devourer for you, the pests, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soul and your vine in the, uh, your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear," says the Lord of hosts. And they'll also enjoy not only prosperity but prominence. Look at verse 12. "Then all the nations will call you blessed." for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Basically, what he's promising them is this this full blessing that would come to them in material ways under the Old Covenant. Now, let me state the principle, and then I'm going to clarify it for our modern context. Are you ready? The principle is simple. Financial generosity for the specific support of God's special glory-promoting institution. Is an inescapable indicator of one who is truly faithful to the Lord um, your giving reveals your heart and their giving should have included then this express institution dedicated to the glory of God now I think I agree with this, uh, this principle even up to this very moment. How many of you have ever heard the statement, at least in business, that your vision, or that your budget, excuse me, is your vision on paper? If you want to know what an institution or even a home values, look at their budget. It is, it is revelatory. Uh, but also, I think that our money not only reveals, but I also think it redirects. It redirects. One said it this way. How you spend your money is the steering wheel on the engine of desire. Sometimes we think of money only revealing what we already are passionate about. But did you know that it can redirect what you're passionate about? You're only like four pages over from it. Flip over to what Jesus said about this in Matthew chapter 6. Just a few pages over. It's a both-and, not an either-or. Notice his teaching on generosity and giving in verse 19 of chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, Ethical Standards of Those Who Will Be Part of the Kingdom of God, similar to Malachi's message. And he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's his explanation. Why? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice he doesn't say where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. He says where you put your treasure, your heart will follow behind it. Indeed, it is the steering wheel on the engine of desire. You want to love something more, spend more money on it could give examples of that, but I think it's just even too obvious to mention. Think of the things that you have spent a pretty penny on, and you certainly value those more than the things that you got from the Dollar Tree. So, this is the principle that he's appealing to. Go back to Malachi, and let's make some clarifications. Are you ready for these? I love... I love, like, making a statement that can feel uncomfortable and then walking back and trying to clarify. All right, here it is. Clarification number one, especially for those of you who are visiting here today, we are not in financial crisis as a church. In fact, we were forecasted to finish the year way above our budget. We thank God for that. So there's no desperation from this pulpit. Clarification number two. I am preaching through the book of Malachi. I did not pick this particular text today because I thought we really need to hear on giving. We've been in Malachi, oh excuse me, we've been in the prophets for a long time, Malachi for almost a month now. It's just where we are. Clarification number three. This is the one I'm most concerned about. This is an old covenant text with old covenant curses and blessings. Friends, you have got to get this. I don't care what your pastor told you growing up. I say that respectfully. But there's been a tendency in the last 50 or 60 years for even well-meaning evangelical people to be like closet prosperity preachers by saying, if you don't give your 10% to the Lord, he's going to curse you. And if you do give your 10% to the Lord, he's going to bless you. That is messed up up. This is old covenant context. I mean, you need to understand it this way. Um, The blessings here are national agricultural blessings. He is promising to give them good weather so that they can produce crops. He is not promising to generate more money in their checking accounts. And also, he is promising it to the nation The national blessing, if they did have a budget, it would be the national budget, not their individual budgets. They would have thought of this collectively, not individually. Additionally, what we have here is a theocracy, not a democracy. The political and religious system in Israel at the time is one. I mean, friends, if you actually like, kind of total it up on all that they were obligated to give, some have estimated that they didn't only give 10% of their income, but they gave anywhere from 20 to 30% of their income. But guess what? That ran the government. Any of you pay taxes? <laughs> there's a parallel. See, we in our own political structure have separated church and state so that naturally the, the religious church thing is different than the government thing. But in that culture and society, it was all one. So you gotta keep some like some differences in mind. We're, we're not like trading like apples and apples here. This is apples and oranges. Here's what I wanna assure you. And I've been wrestling through this through the entire 12. I'm like, how do we apply all these curses? All these like just I mean, if you read Deuteronomy 28 to 32, you'll come up with a chapter and a half of curses, and, excuse me, two chapters of curses and one chapter of blessings that are promised to people who obey. What are we supposed to do with that? Friends, here is the gospel truth. Every curse, every expression of God's wrath that you would ever endure for disobedience has been paid for fully and finally by the Lord Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. The curse is paid, and listen to this, it gets better. All the great things that Jesus did to please his Father, all the blessings that he secured on account of his obedience have also been given to you in Christ. You already have avoided the curse and are enjoying the blessing and will enjoy so more fully one day. But nevertheless, generosity does indeed mark those who have received this grace in Christ. Uh, Friends, let me put it very simply. You don't give to get, you give because to you it has been given. You don't give to get, you give because to you it has already been given. Paul, when he teaches on the matter of giving and supporting the work of God in a new covenant context, this is the way that he says it. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. So, Paul is still actually agreeing with the premise here that those who have been given to by God give back to him, but they don't give to get. They give because they've been given to. Does that make sense? Friends, in this particular world in which we live, you need to understand that tithing is not a new covenant command. It's not. Giving to the Lord's work is a consequence, it's not a command, it is a consequence of something that has already happened in you. Friends, I've seen this in... In my own life, I know what it's like just to, like, look at the the 10% thing, and then you're asking questions like, all right, is it on the tithe, or is it the the gross, or is it the net? And you start analyzing, you know, these particular things and looking at these percentage points, and it just becomes, like, really calculated. It's almost like, all right, what's the bare minimum that I can get away with and still be right with God? Wrong conversation. We support God's work because we're so grateful for it in our life. I am so grateful here. I want to encourage you as a church for the the generosity of our church family. You know, one of the things that we haven't done, we could do it again. We just didn't go back to it through all the COVID stuff. We've tried passing an offering thing before and we've gone without it because we're like, well, we don't see it like exemplified actually in the New Testament text. You know, it says Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Like there were a few things that inform our liturgy but there's nowhere that says that you have to pass an offering plate. So we're like, all right, well, since people are afraid of germs and such, we're just not going to do it right now. You know, the crazy thing is we don't pass an offering and there has been more money raised in this church without it than with it. I think it's just because people give because God's been gracious to them. There's no, like, implicit, all right, here's your plug. Don't, don't forget to throw in your two cents. Praise God for that. That's a good thing. That means that people here are, are recognizing the grace of God in their lives, and they're responding to this. And I realize that this is a heavy topic, and it could be new for some of you. And I'm not telling you not to give 10%. There's nothing wrong with that. But you give out of grace, not out of guilt. Two resources I'll recommend. You can read them. On your own, if you have questions, you can reach out to us. God and Money by Greg Balmer and John Cortinez. These guys are Harvard Business School graduates who did a theology of money in the New Testament, and it is a fantastic read. God and Money. And then the other, a little more simple, is The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. If you want to know more about what this looks like, Alcorn's helpful on this particular topic. But the point is that those who have been, like, redeemed by the Lord, despite a post-Christian culture, will value spiritual generosity. It is a result of what God has given them, not a requirement to get God's grace. Here's the last value, and we're done. Value number three, eternal expectancy. This is the last thing that we would value in a post-Christian culture, eternal expectancy. When you read 3.16 to 4.3, and you can include verses 4 and 5 as a conclusion to the book or as part of this final point, you're going to see like a, a really clear reorientation of hope toward the eternal versus, versus the temporal. Now, I want you to look at verse 16 for a second. Because to me, it sounds kind of like, or excuse me, verse 13, chapter three, verse 13. It kind of sounds like, no offense to teenagers here, I love you, I was youth pastor for five years, and I was a teenager at one point. But there is a small subsection of you who are really sarcastic, bitter folks. I pray you're not even here today, but if you are, no offense to the 90% of you who are just fantastic people. Don't be offended. But When I hear this, I think of a bitter, sarcastic teenager. Read it with that tone in mind. Maybe your own voice when you were that age. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? (laughs) You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. The evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They get away with it. You can hear it, right? I mean, they're, they're bitter. Right, God, it's totally, isn't it worth it? Like, if, if we do, notice here in verse 15, or excuse me, verse 14, it says, if we keep your charge, if we walk, if we obey, as in mourning, like, even if we go through the ritual of mourning, it doesn't do anything. When we try to keep your charge, it doesn't do anything. Uh, the arrogant, the prideful, the, those who reject you, they're the ones that are getting away with it. Like, is it even worth it? And then, this is so different than anywhere else in the book of Malachi. At one point in recent weeks, this brought me to tears. Not every time I read it, but it is beautiful. The way that God answers is so unique because it's not a direct answer. Now he speaks through the prophet and he tells of this instance of something that probably happened historically, but I think it definitely points to a figurative understanding of God's response to these people who think that it's not worth it. Look at the response in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Listen to this. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Isn't this beautiful? God is saying, I've written you down. You're in the book. I'm not going to forget the people that I will ultimately bless. I know that it doesn't look like it right now, but you're in my ledger. You have been recorded. The good will come. He says, I will treat you. This is beautiful. Verse 17 again. He says, I will remember you in the day when I make up my treasured possession. You're like a jewel that's been accounted for, like in a log. Like, I know that you're in this safety deposit box, and I'm going to get you out. I'm going to treat you like my own children. There will be a difference. So that's the general principle. I haven't forgotten you. It is worth it. I know it doesn't seem like it in this moment. And there is coming a day soon in which all will finally be made apparent that was otherwise invisible. And it is the day of the Lord. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming, and it shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Listen to this. Even though right now it doesn't seem like there's much difference between those who have been faithful to Yahweh and those who forsake Him, He's saying, on the day of the Lord, when he returns to intervene, his fiery white-hot judgment will flow down from heaven onto them, and they will be consumed. Now, friends here, this is poetic imagery. This is not even speaking directly to hell, because in this particular passage, it says they'll be consumed like chaff. But it is giving you this just horrific picture of the way things will be on that day. God's wrath poured out intensely upon those who have forsaken him. And I want you to contrast that, though, with verse 2. But for you who fear my name, notice this, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. This is beautiful. What does it mean, the sun of righteousness? So it's, it's the sun. Imagine it rising, and it is producing righteousness in God's people. It is making things right that which are wrong. We think of righteousness in a positional sense oftentimes because of the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, uh, the word righteousness could also be translated rectification, to make right that which is wrong. God's sun will rise, and instead of just causing things to grow, it will cause them to be made right. And it has in it healing in its wings. You're like, the sun doesn't have wings. Well, the word wing in the Old Testament can it be translated corner or edge In this case, the rays of the sun will go out and they will produce healing. They will fix that which is broken. It will all be repaired. It will all be made right. And then this awesome metaphor, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You ever seen like an animal like pinned up? And then it finally gets released. Friends, he's acknowledging it. You may feel pinned in right now. You may feel constricted in this moment. But there is a freedom that is coming fully and finally. And contrast that with the fiery judgment predicted in the verse before. And notice the prominence enjoyed in verse 3. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. You will finally be on the top of things. I know you've been marginalized. I know you've been downcast, but you will be on top. In light of that, here's his conclusion that we began with. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Hey, post-Christian world. For those of you who are trying to remain faithful despite a corrupt society around you, he's got two closing reminders for you. One is just keep obeying. The law of Moses is just a summary of all God's ethical commands. He said just keep obeying, but notice the second one, keep trusting. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This mention of Elijah the prophet once more is speaking again of one who will come like Elijah, an outsider, one who is not actually respected by the community, but who will be effective in his prophetic witness and one who will precede the coming of the Lord when he makes all things right. This phrase, turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, assumes that the former generation was faithful, the latter generation was not. And now they're all going to be back on the same page again, and he's going to make this thing work. And if it doesn't, it will be utter destruction. It is a closing appeal to obey and to trust. Friends, I think that um, all of us have this temptation at times to measure things prematurely. I was amused the other week when I concluded the message uh, by quoting Dane Ortland saying that trusting the Lord is like holding a plank. Uh, some people came up to me, I think I had three or four, said, I had no idea what you meant by that analogy. Like, do you mean holding a piece of wood? And it made me realize that we have some really like non exercisey people in our congregation. All right, so here's what you need to understand. When I say that trusting the Lord and waiting for the Lord is like holding a plank, I am not talking about holding a piece of wood. I'm talking about holding your body in such a way that it is like a piece of wood. Now, I'm not going to get on the floor and demonstrate. But you can imagine someone being at the top of a push-up position, for example, and their body being straight. That's the easy plank. If you want to make it even harder, you get down on your elbows so that there's more gravity pushing you. (laughs) The point is that I was trying to make is that it is a painful process to wait on the Lord. But God gives us the strength to endure. Friends, part of what you're doing is obeying, and part of what you're doing is holding on in faith. Why Because you know that the outcome you're seeking is not in the moment, but for that eternal end. You look at anybody at a gym, like just sweating it, killing themselves, and you can be there sitting, eating your Krispy Kreme donuts if you were blessed with any. You're thinking like, oh, loser, I'm the winner. You know, look, I get to relax. I'm having a good time. Oh, man, I'd hate to be that guy. But look at that guy in 10 years versus you in 10 years. It's easy to measure prematurely. The guy who starts a business in his 20s and has no time on the weekends because he's trying to get stuff off the ground versus the guy who's also in his 20s and buying like every new motorcycle or new gadget and contraption. Like, look at him in 10 years versus that guy in 10 years. We, we measure sometimes at the wrong time. And what Malachi is actually admonishing us to do through this final exhortation is to measure it at the right time. You need an eternal expectancy, not an immediate expectancy. God has written down your name in his book. You will be blessed beyond your imagination for your faithful service to him. And you cannot forget that. One of the best examples of this in our recent history is Jim Elliott, who made that famous statement, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you're not familiar with his story, I would encourage you to consider it. Essentially, back in 1956, he and a few other missionary friends went down south to the Alka Indians to try to just forsake the American dream for the sake of proclaiming the gospel to the nations, And what would happen is they would take their plane and for several days, they'd fly over and drop off and parachute gifts to these Indians to try to establish rapport with them. But then on uh, January the 6th, uh, they actually made contact. They landed on the beachhead and they were approached by one man and two women. They exchanged greetings. And at that particular point, again, the missionaries just trying to present a platform for gospel conversation, presented them with some rubber bands, some yo-yos, some balloons, uh, and then the man was taken up in the plane. They even let the guy fly around with them. It was on Sunday, January 8th, that they were due to radio in at 4.30 p.m., but there was silence. Silence. And when no message came a plane was sent as a rescue party and their four bodies were recovered all lanced to death with spears the fifth one by the way was never found it seems they were ambushed and all five of them were martyred for the sake of christ all five of them were married four of them were fathers one wife was pregnant and his three-year-old was heard to tell the new crying baby never you mind when we get to heaven I'll show you which one is daddy and so Elliot did say and he lived he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose here's a man who saw through the lie of consumerism he saw through the lie of the post-Christian world and said it's worth it Stories like that, I think, are good for example but bad for instruction because you're thinking, okay, what does that mean for me to really value the Lord in a post-Christian world that I leave my family and go to some isolated tribe in a South American village? It could mean that. It could. But let me tell you what, at least it, does mean for all of us, regardless of our mission status. Those who value Christ's values will be marked by an ethical purity, a spiritual generosity, and an eternal expectancy. Elliot's values of that took him to die in South America. Yours may keep you here in sunny southwest Florida, but either way, those who are truly faithful, those who have enjoyed the rich favor of God, naturally express it in the way that they live, in the way that they give, and in the way that they hope. And so, friends, I would call you to that next step of faith. Faith. As you know that the favor of God has already been extended to you in Christ, there are just three simple action items for being able to display that glory even further. They correspond with these values. In light of the value of ethical purity, some of you are being invited to live out. Live out the grace of God in good works. Do good to others. Some of you are being invited to give back, to invest in God's kingdom and his church. And some of you are like, Yeah, I'm doing that. I'm good. Some of you just need to hold on. You need an eternal expectancy, not an immediate one. And what is it that sustains any of these actions the living out, the holding on, the giving back? Friends, it's not grit, it's grace. You need to revel in the fact that God's wrath has been absorbed and his blessings have been secured in Christ. That's the only thing that will fuel further steps of faith. You need to anticipate what is and will be yours in Christ. And so we conclude our service today just by reveling in the grace of God because we believe that that will fuel the good works, the giving, the hope and expectation. So I want to pray, and then the musicians will come, and we'll sing a couple of songs of gratitude to our God for the grace that he's shown us in Christ. Father in heaven.